Coming Back is a listener-supported podcast. If you like the show and want to see it reach more grieving ears and hearts, support Coming Back on Patreon at patreon.com slash shelbyforsythia. My Patreon supporters get exclusive access to weekly grief journaling prompts and live grief hangouts with me. Pledge for as little as $1 per month and change or cancel your support at any time. Join this growing behind-the-scenes community now at patreon.com slash shelbyforsythia. Thank you so much for listening to Coming Back. Just one more thing, grief growers. Do you ever feel trapped, stuck, or silenced in the aftermath of loss? Are you struggling to figure out who you are now or what your life is made of now that death, divorce, or diagnosis has steamrolled through? Whether you're trying to cultivate deeper self-compassion, figure out where grief belongs in your life now, or simply feel like you have more room to breathe, the three words that your heart needs to hear are permission to grieve. Permission to Grieve is the title of my latest book, a tribute to the three little words that changed how I saw myself and my grief after the death of my mom. I know it has the power to change how you see yourself and your grief in whatever loss you're facing. You can find Permission to Grieve now on Amazon. Give yourself more grace, space, and room to breathe in the aftermath of loss, because we could all use a little more Permission to Grieve. Hi there, and welcome to Coming Back, a podcast about coming back to life after death, divorce, diagnosis, and more. On today's show, I'm talking to the human behind the Instagram account at ThatGoodGrief, Rachel Richbloom, about the one in a million loss she faced, the death of both of her parents, in just three years, from the same type of brain cancer. Also this week, I'm letting you know the three things you do not have permission to do in your grief, and sharing an excerpt from my new book, Permission to Grieve. I'm Shelby Forsythia, an intuitive grief guide and author who speaks, writes, and teaches powerful truths on grief and loss. My mom's death in 2013 set me on the path to becoming a lifelong student of grief, and I use what I learned to help others find direction, get support, and cultivate radical self-compassion in the aftermath of loss. Because even through grief, we are growing. Let's get started. Hi there, grief growers, and welcome to another episode of Coming Back. Thank you so much for joining me today. If you're anything like me and very, very, very conscious of the looming holiday season, I hope you'll join us for our next grief support call on Monday, November 25th. It's just a few days before Thanksgiving here in the United States, so if you'd like a grief gathering to steady your head and your heart before walking into the fray of turkey and family and lots of obligatory questions about you and how you're doing, I hope you'll join us there. To access the call, simply pledge to support this podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash shelbyforsythia. To access our group call, simply pledge to support this podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash shelbyforsythia. No matter what level you pledge at, you will receive an invitation to join us live on November 25th. And when that day comes, just click the link to pull up our private chat room on YouTube. I look forward to seeing you there and holding space for your grief as we enter the often dreaded holiday season. You can find a link to my Patreon page where you can pledge and join us on November 25th in the show notes.
This week, grief growers, I want to share one of my favorite parts of Permission to Grieve with you. This is a section of the book that actually came to me really, really early on in the process of writing, because as I was thinking about all of the things I wanted permission to feel, be, and do in the aftermath of my mom's death, I was also thinking of the things that I did not want permission to feel, be, or do in the aftermath of my mom's death. So as I was writing the things that I wanted to happen, I was simultaneously writing the things that I did not want to see happen as well. And I'll tell you that there aren't many things that are off limits in Permission to Grieve. I only named three, but they're really, really important and worth talking about because they do show up in the world. People do give themselves these types of permissions when they really shouldn't. So check out this excerpt from the book and see if you or someone you know is giving these toxic permission slips to themselves. Things you do not have permission to do. Invariably, I need to drop in a short note about how this tool of permission granting should not be used. 1. You do not have permission to use grief as a crutch or an excuse. Some people like to blame violence, abuse, addiction, or general poor decision-making on grief and the emotions of grief. While there is a validity in the effect that grief has on mental health and unlocking hereditary predispositions such as alcoholism, you do not have permission to use grief to justify hurting others or yourself. For example, you cannot tell yourself, I have permission to act like an asshole to my boss because I'm grieving. Or, I have permission to drink myself into tomorrow because I'm grieving. Or, I have permission to hit my spouse because I'm grieving. These behaviors are not grief. They are avoidance of grief and or the diffusing of grief emotions through focused energy and actions like drinking, physical violence, sex, food, etc. People behave this way when they are facing away from grief. And permission can only be granted to grieve when we are facing towards it, asking it what it wants and how it wants to show up in the world. If you or someone you care about is engaging in these behaviors, the grief recovery method would call these short-term energy-relieving behaviors or STURBs, please seek out a local grief recovery specialist, support group, or a counselor trained in grief and loss. Two, you do not have permission to tell others how to grieve. What works for one griever may not work for another. Telling yourself, I have permission to mount photos of my dad in the house, even though he's dead, may not be appropriate for someone who did not have a great relationship with their now deceased father. I have permission to be angry with my father, even though he's dead, might be more appropriate for their grief. Bottom line, your permissions may not fit others' griefs and vice versa. Just because you've granted yourself permission to feel, be, or do something in the aftermath of your own grief, does not mean those permissions automatically apply to everyone else's grief, even if they're facing the loss of the same person, place, or thing you are. 3. You do not have permission to write someone else's permission slip for them. In a similar vein, you are not allowed to write a permission slip for another person. Grief and permission granting are very personal, so you've got to let people choose their own words, phrasing, and timing. You cannot show up and hand somebody a permission slip that you've crafted on their behalf and expect their grief to abide by it. While grief is a universal experience, it is experienced on a personal level, and when grief is spoken to by anyone other than the person who is experiencing it, that's often a recipe for disaster, or at least for hearing a big fuck off. Let people write their own permission slips for grief. 
A note on suicidal thoughts, reckless behavior, and wanting to die. A common experience for grievers is the feeling of, I want to die right alongside my loved one. This definitely happened to me. Now, I didn't so much want to take my own life as I just wanted to be dead. There is an enormous difference between the two. It was less a feeling of, I want to die by my own hand, and more a feeling of, if I didn't wake up tomorrow, that would be okay. Grievers often engage in what is considered reckless behavior for two reasons. One, to feel the rush of being alive, and two, to put themselves in harm's way. These behaviors include everything from dangerous driving and overusing alcohol and drugs to going bungee jumping and having hookup sex. While these are not always life-threatening behaviors, please know that they can point back to that feeling of wanting to be dead. If you are facing thoughts of wanting to be dead, please know that it is normal and extremely common. Megan Devine writes about this particular emotion beautifully in her book, It's Okay That You Are Not Okay, and if you haven't already, I highly recommend reading it. If you feel suicidal or have a plan to take your own life, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255 or text the word HOME to the crisis text line at 741-741. I have leaned on both of these resources in my grief and can speak wholeheartedly to their kindness and empathy. We have the power to grant ourselves so much permission to grieve. But we cannot use our grief as a crutch, tell other people how to grieve, or write other people's permission slips for them. And even if we do genuinely want to curl up and die right alongside our loved one, we must, must recognize and remember that there are others out there who feel just like we have felt, and there are others out there who are willing and able to help us no matter what state we're in. If you or someone you know is using toxic permission slips to justify bad behavior and grief, consider purchasing a copy of Permission to Grieve on Amazon, and you can always find a link to my new book in the show notes. Up next, I'm talking to Rachel Rich Blue about the death of both of her parents in the lottery that she never wanted to win. Grief is setting sail twice on the 2020 bereavement cruises to join a boatload of grieving hearts for interactive grief workshops, heart healing craft projects, circles of hope, and a beautiful candlelit night of remembrance at sea. Request more information at comingbackcruise.com. You'll be contacted by the cruises organizer and previous coming back podcast guest, Linda Finley, to hear more about your choice of two tropical cruises setting sail in 2020. And when you're ready, she'll help you reserve your spot on board. Bereavement cruise cabins do go quickly, so request more information now at comingbackcruise.com, where grief finds support and community on the open sea. Rachel Richbloom is an unintentional expert in grief. After the deaths of both of her parents when she was 26 and 28 years old to terminal brain cancer, Rachel started her Instagram page at That Good Grief to share her story, provide a platform for others who are experiencing loss in life earlier than they should, and to provide helpful tools and resources to the extended network of family and friends who want to help the grievers in their life, but just don't know how. Rachel and her page have been featured in Bustle, Marketplace, and NBC Better. She lives in San Francisco with her husband, Dan. 
Rachel, I'm delighted to have you here on Coming Back because I personally follow you on Instagram and your account provides me with these moments of, oh, I'm reassured that A, I'm not alone here, but B, the other people are out here having these conversations about grief and loss. So welcome to Coming Back. And if you could please start us off with your loss story. Yes. Thank you so much for having me and for joining on this lovely journey we call life and grief and all things that come with it. Um, So the short version of my loss story um, is that um, I've lost both my parents to brain cancer in the last three years. Um, So my dad was diagnosed back in October 2015. um, When I was 25 years old, he was 58. um, And he ended up dying um, 10 months later um, in August 2016 when I was 26. Uh, and then we had, I had a, <laughs> a 14 month respite until my mom was diagnosed with the exact same type of brain cancer, um, in October, 2017. And then she passed away two days after my 28th birthday, um, in December, 2017. I'm kind of having this moment of holy hell, because <laughs> like, I, I think the first question that jumps to my mind is like, what are the odds? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, I always say it's like I've won some sort of lottery because, like, statistically, it's very unlikely, but in just like the worst possible way. Um, so <laughs> that's where we're at right now. But, um, you know, it's been a, it's been a journey. And then the other layer to all of that that I, I include because it's consequential is my brother, um, is an addict. Um, he's fortunately right now, he's been clean for just over a year. I'm very proud of him every single day for that. But, Obviously, that um, you know was became more complicated after losing both of our parents and needing to kind of take on a parental role for him, but also wanting to have a sibling who had the shared experience of loss. Can I just jump right in and ask you kind of a shitty question, and you tell oh, me whether or not you're comfortable it. answering it? Yes. <laughs> um, I'm wondering, with you sharing that information too with both of your parents dying and then your brother having a a story of addiction as well. If you ever feel like I'm the last one standing, I'm the only sturdy leg on this table. Yeah, I think, um, I think I've always been the type of person who has felt an immense sense of responsibility, um, to society, to others around me (laughs) too. I, you know, and I, I think that comes from being, the oldest child. I think there's certain like grooming that children get um, and are treated as like kind of the responsible one from a young age. And so I think that was an identity I always had inside of me. Um, I think everything the last couple of years has certainly exacerbated that. Uh, But I've had to balance that with the realization of how limited my scope of control is. Um, So all of these things have taught me that I am the only person standing But then also, like, I'm only responsible for myself, and there's only so much I can do, you know, for the others around me. Sure, that makes a lot of sense, too. I'm the last one left, and yet still in the face of of death and addiction, I have no power here. (laughs) Just, like, harsh realities. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, something like that. Yeah, and I think, you know, there's, I hate to silver lining things too quickly in my life, because, you know, we all deserve to kind of sit with the pain that we have, but... Um, one of the things that I have learned through Naranon, which is for family members or friends of people who have addicts in their lives, um, particularly kind of like the partner association to NA, 
AA um, or AA if you're familiar with that, um, is just the concept of boundaries and, you know, kind of being in control of your own destiny and willpower and decision making. Um, and, you know, it's been the toughest possible way probably to learn those skills, but um, something that's been deeply valuable to me, both in my relationship with my brother, but also like my relationships, period, full stop. I think that when sudden losses and extreme losses like this happen, like losing both of your parents back to back within the last three years, um, a lot of other things also go out the window. So, you know, old things that you believe to be true about life or what the real, the order of things should be, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm wondering what else maybe that you bought into or believed in or felt to be true also died as they were in either both the process of diagnosis and dying and then actually after their deaths as well. Yeah, I think for me personally, I hadn't really encountered death in my like close family, close friends um, up until these losses. So I had lived in a nice little oblivion of, you know, kind of what death was and what people were fearful of. I think honestly, though, I kind of skipped over the, I went from like, not oblivion of obliviousness about death and the reality of that uh, straight to kind of a real acceptance of it rather than stopping at kind of the fear phase in the middle, which I imagine most people encounter in maybe their mid twenties and thirties like I am. Um, and it's caused me to just, I guess, live within reality a little bit more. Um, I, I have a harder time kind of not being within reality in whatever sense that may mean. So like, even in the workplace and just kind of hypothesizing about different scenarios that can come about. Um, and then also in my personal life of just thinking like, this is how it goes. And if this is it for me, then that's it. Um, and being a little bit, maybe sometimes too pragmatic about things that can still have enjoyment and fulfillment in them. Um, if I were not to kind of immediately write it off as the be all end all, um, and kind of gone for the day. I think other than that, um, it's challenged me in my faith. Um, I grew up Jewish. Um, I still definitely identify culturally with that. I think where I land spiritually right now is up in the air. And I haven't honestly had the time or space to put that much thought into it. Um, I think I still participate in the things that have meaning, but it's going to take some time for me to sort out the pieces there of what what it is that I believe to be true. I just had this phrase come to me as you were speaking about that and it's shelving spirituality like let's just put that on the <laughs> shelf for a while and we'll get back to it's, that later it's just like a, <laughs> exactly like i gotta pick my battles here people and i just <laughs> that's not one i can take on i know that i can't take it on lightly right there's no like light version of deciding whether or not you believe in like a higher power um, so for me right now that's temporarily on hold um and over time that's going to going to find its way to the forefront as I need to think about it. But um, for now, there's been, I, I, I describe it as like survival versus thriving mode. Like I'm still, I'm slowly moving toward back to a place of thriving mode, but up until now, it's certainly been in survival mode. And that's just doing the things that are necessary to kind of survive the day. Um, and for me, that wasn't a piece that I needed to face head on to survive. Um, but I imagine in you know the years to come, it will be. Yeah, because then it moves into a space of 
some people do need religion or spirituality to survive and other people don't necessarily. And so shelving that for later makes a lot of sense. But as you move into the space of now, I can start to think about the things that will help me thrive as opposed to just survive. Um, yeah, then it starts to come a little bit more out of the periphery and into the forefront of your vision, I think. Yeah, and you can spend a little more time on like the philosophical piece of things. Like I don't, <laughs> I need to like get through the day. I need to process the trauma that I witnessed. I need to, you know, um, go to work <laughs> and like deliver on gold there. So there's not much space left for me right now to like go into a deep philosophical space where I have time and energy to dedicate to that. And I, I've just kind of come to terms with like that being okay. Um, I think therapy obviously like gives some space to that, but on a much deep, you know, on a deeper, more continuous level, like I'm just, I'm not there yet. And that's going to be okay for now. I literally just wrote down the phrase philosophy requires bandwidth. And I think that's very, mm -hmm. very true. It takes a lot of energy to sit down and like think really hard about hard stuff. And um, absolutely. Yeah. Just, just acknowledging that reality. So thank you for, for bringing that up because I think a lot of people both grieving and non-grieving expect people who have lost someone to do the work of like the reckoning and like the figuring it all out and blah, blah, blah within, I don't know, months to years after a loss and kind of be settled in their new identity. And you're just like, no, no, I'm still surviving. I'm not yeah. thriving yet. I don't have the bandwidth for that. Exactly. Yeah. That I'm supposed to have some profound, profound takeaway from the experience. I think, um, I was with a group of women the other night. We do, I participate in a dinner party, um, which is a nonprofit organization that yes. helps groups of people in their 20s and 30s get together and have potluck dinners every so often who have all ex experienced significant loss. And um, one of the women was speaking to her feeling of like, you know, I'm just striving for purpose in all of this and just kept using the word purpose, purpose, purpose. And I think, um, you know, we do what we need to do to like narrow narrativize I don't know how to say that word but like create a narrative um out of the experiences that we have and if that helps you get through the day by all means but um it shouldn't be done out of obligation or feeling the need to find purpose in something like uh, I, I I'm learning things from the experiences I went through I don't think my dad died for a purpose I don't think my mom died for a purpose but I can derive meaning from it over time and things that I learned but um to again, like have a philosophical realization at the moment of their passing as if that was, you know, the purpose of it uh, in and of itself is, is hard for me to buy into personally. I'm really glad that you brought up the dinner party because this is an organization that I absolutely love and adore and grief growers listening actually don't know this, but I attended probably three or four dinner party meetings really shortly after I moved to Chicago. And they were incredible because all of a sudden I was no longer the girl who lost her mother. Like that wasn't my identity. I was just in a room full of people who had the same or similar stories. And so it mm -hmm. wasn't mm -hmm. the identifying marker. And I think that's the next question I want to segue into with you is, you know, there's all these things that we lose when somebody we love dies, then there's all these identities and beliefs and stories that we gain unwanted or wanted, including the girl with two dead parents. And so I wonder mm -hmm. how that has changed how you interact with other people, how you see yourself in the world. So I, I try not to think of myself as a story. I think I 
I have gotten my story down pat clearly <laughs> as evidence at the beginning of this podcast is I know how to tell it. Um, I try not to think too much about what people are saying about me before I enter a room. I think that's probably a best practice from middle school and high school as well of like not to think about how people are talking about you in that way. Um, Cause there's probably no good that can come from it. Um, but I don't know. It's something I grapple with where intellectually I know that that's going on because I do the same thing for other people in my life. I'm like, Hey, let me just kind of give you a disclaimer. So you know how to have conversation, but um, it's just kind of a, I try, I, I try, I think some of that comes from feeling like a victim of circumstances. And though these things happened to me that were completely out of my control, I don't necessarily see myself as a victim. Um, It's just kind of a piece of my experience. That's a big deal. I'm wondering if you can speak more on that of not seeing yourself as a victim of really, really unfortunate circumstances. I think part of it is that because it didn't just happen to me. Um, like my dad was the was the victim. My mom was the victim. Uh, my brother is, you know, dealing with his own. He's victim to his own disease um, at times, and so I think for me, I just come from a place of like, I think that's kind of goes back to that whole control conversation of recognizing that there are things that happen to you that are completely out of your control, but you're not necessarily victim to them. It's just kind of life happens. Things happen, both good and bad. Um, And sometimes you have some piece of responsibility in them, but things like this, I mean, I have no role in it. And so um, it's hard to kind of capture in the, in the language of a victim, I guess. I wonder where that belief came from for you that things just happen as opposed to, gosh, because so many people come on the podcast and and talk about both through a religious and a non-religious lens of a, a, I never thought this would happen to me, but B, I thought if I was just a good enough person that only good things would happen to me, or I would never experience anything bad. And those two mentalities of, I never thought this would happen to me. And if I'm just good enough, nothing bad will happen can both really instigate like the victim mentality. And I wonder if you, if you grew up with that just totally off your radar, or if it's something you had to learn to shed as a result of your losses. Yeah, I guess, I mean, it's a great question. And I I completely understand the kind of approach that people typically take in these sorts of situations and seeing it through both those different ways. Um, I think uniquely because these were, you know, random diseases that happened to my parents that we don't really know the cause for that. It's, you know, some sort of statistical lottery that both of them died of it and um, diagnosed so closely together. Um, I think it's that sense of control. There are things in my life that I feel like I'm in control of. And so, you know, the idea of doing good and getting good back in the world or doing the right things, like, I think it's helped for me, maybe over time, just separating out what are those things versus the things that I have no control over, uh, no put no input in no matter how much good I do in the world. Um, You know, I can't change the illnesses of of cancer that befall my parents. And so, um, again, it, it may be that that's kind of evolved. It's hard for me to think back to a time where I've always been like a goody two shoes. And so I've always wanted to do good. But I think 
maybe inherently I just understood the difference between doing good and receiving good and the things that I had within my realm of control um, versus the things that are there's always randomness there's atrophy in the world like that's just the the world we live in I think that's very practical like I'm sitting back in my chair right now and I'm like that's just very practical yeah, I've, I've been a practically minded person. How I think that that was a combination of my parents. I'll give them credit where credit is due there. I think, um, you know, my mom was a deeply emotional person, but very much, you know, voiced her opinion in situations. My dad was a very business minded person. And so I think I got some combination of both of that from both of them uh, to lead me to be a fairly practically minded human. I wouldn't say that I was like that as like a teenager because, you know, as a teenager, there's no such thing thing is practical logic or <laughs> reasonableness but, um, in my adult in my adult years I've come to recognize that what is your relationship to cancer in general because I know um, for me personally I loathe cancer now because it's what mm-hmm. killed my mom um, and so anytime especially when October rolls around and everybody does the breast cancer yeah blah blah, blah I stay as far away as I possibly can from it. I've never participated in a walk. I don't donate to the charities. <laughs> I feel, and well, there's some guilt tied up in that because I'm like, you could be helping, you know, sure. but at the same time, I'm like, no, that's the thing that killed her. I just can't touch it with a 10 foot pole, no matter what or how good the cause is. And I wonder mm-hmm. if that resonates with you with brain cancer, cancer in general, or if you've chosen to lean hard into it or kind of a mix of the two. Yeah, I would say the a mix of the two, and I totally get where you're coming from. I think the one that bothers me the most is cancer is one of the um, astrological signs. And so, like, what my cousin, who's one of my best friends, is a cancer, <laughs> and I'm like, I just hate that. Like, she's like sent me once there was like a T-shirt, and you know, it has the little like cancer symbol or whatever's on it, and it says cancer. She's like, isn't this cute? And I'm like, no, no, it's not. I I don't like it at all. <laughs> There's not not one part of me that thinks that's a cute T-shirt. Um, so I, I understand in theory how it could be if it said literally any other astrological sign. Um, but I think there's a couple, there's a couple like approaches I take to it. I think one on the practical sense, since that's what I'm, I guess I'm leaning into today um, is that I don't necessarily think of cancer in like the most, the largest sense. Um, I don't necessarily identify with that so much. Um, just because both my parents have the same type and it was it's such a specific um, instance of it that, you know, brain cancer, an experience of brain cancer is completely different than experience with, with um, breast cancer, with a blood cancer, with lung cancer, with, you know, everything is its own journey. Um, and so I don't necessarily feel as tied to that large of a bucket. I don't, but like, I, I mean, there's organizations that, am I allowed to swear on here? I can, I can censor myself. Oh my gosh, absolutely. <laughs> this is a swear friendly <laughs> podcast. Okay. Just like to check, you know, uh, respect to everyone. Um, but like the organization, fuck cancer, like things like, and like stand up to cancer and all that, like I identify with what they're doing. Um, but I do think that cancer has become such as like buzzword for such a large category of diseases and experiences um, that sometimes I struggle a little bit with identifying it with such a large entity. I think, you know, it's wonderful that October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Um, there's part of me that like can't really relate to that experience at all though, um, because what my parents went through, I understand like at the end of the day, the te- like the, the biological replication of cells and whatnot is the same disease, but um, how they went through 
through it was just very different um, than someone who's gone through it in another part of their body. I wonder, I mean, just, just scrolling through your Instagram and looking at your stories, there are these bits and pieces of um, images from, from therapists, from doodle artists, from all of these different outlets that talk about grief and mental health and taking care of yourself in different ways. And then every now and then there's a post of you or of people in your mm-hmm. life. And I'm looking at one right now from June 24th that's commemorating your first year of marriage. Mm-hmm. And I wonder how, or I wonder what that process was like for you of not just your wedding day, walking up to getting married, but even just dating, holding relationships with somebody as someone who has lost so much so young? Yeah, I think um, I I feel very lucky in that I started dating my now husband a year before my dad got sick. Um, So he's been through this entire experience with me. I think it's incredibly challenging to try and form those relationships. Um, You know, it's it's honestly like finding a therapist, right? The last thing you want to do is try and find a therapist when you're in crisis. Um, it's hard to date when you're in crisis. It'd be hard to form a relationship at that point in time and then kind of bring someone up to speed and have them be as invested as you are um, while in crisis. Uh, but it's obviously served me incredibly well to have him, um, his name is Dan, Dan with me through this entire journey. I don't know that I would be standing here today were it not for him um, because there were a lot of points in time where it felt like I didn't have a whole lot to live for otherwise, um, to be perfectly candid. And I, I can relate to that experience in a, in a smaller sense of just even forming relationships now in my adult life and knowing that from you know here on out, anyone I meet is not going to encounter my parents, um, is not going to have any chance to interact with them, and are only going to be knowing them through the memories that I share. Um, which is why sharing those memories and stories is so important to me is because that's the only way... Uh, to experience them, but it's hard. I mean, you have to find people who are empathetic and interested in understanding you and how you came to be as a person well before you met them. And one piece of that for me is is understanding who my parents were as people and how um, I became who I am because of them. I think that's really phenomenal and just also points to this desire to use your platform as a place both for storytelling from your own life, but also acknowledgement and affirmation that people in their grief are not alone. And I wonder when, when did the urge strike you to create an Instagram account called that good grief and just start posting grief things on it. And I I don't know, I'm, is it something that you're interested in, in growing and monetizing and making into a thing, or is it the place where your grief lives or both or neither. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's a little bit of both. Um, I wouldn't go straight into monetizing because like that's, I mean, let's cross that bridge when we get there, but I'm not worried about that today. Um, But I am interested in growing it as well as having this daily outlet for my grief. Um, I consider it my like daily therapy. I have opportunities, you know, I sit down with a therapist once a week. We talk about these big consequential moments in my life. Um, But as a person going through the world of grief, there are so many little things that happen throughout a day um, that you don't necessarily have the time or space to process, but 
would be very beneficial to take the time and space to process. And so that's how I use that page. Um, since then, it's obviously evolved into something a little bit bigger than that. And one of the things I discovered in going through the process of creating the account was also that there are, you know, as a, a younger person who has experienced these things, so I'm in my late 20s, um, a lot of people haven't gone through the experience yet, but would love to show up for others in the right way and don't know how. Um, everyone's always kind of paralyzed by saying the wrong thing or not knowing what to say. Um, and so providing people with a tangible tool that they could provide to others has seemed to be really resonant with um, at least the people in my life. Um, it all kind of came about because after my dad died, um, I had spent a lot of time reading different books. I found uh, Breath Beca- When Breath Becomes Air was the first book I read um, about grief. And I realized, oh, I'm not alone in this experience. And there are other people who have written about their experience in really eloquent and meaningful and powerful ways in a way that I couldn't necessarily. Um, and so I had started devouring different grief books, much to the chagrin of others around me who thought I could probably use a little like fiction in my life. <laughs> um, and I, <laughs> you know, but hey, guess what? Turns out fiction has death in it too. Oh my gosh, um, even more than anyhow. grief books. <laughs> I know, I know. It's unbelievable. It was so funny. I had someone recommend it. You just need to read something, you know, like a beach read. And then you like get on the third page and it's like, his mom was in hospice care. And I was like, I, I mean, you can't win. <laughs> so anywho, um, but I had taken to reading all these books. I started, you know, kind of capturing all these quotes that I was reading in these books that I felt like really resonated with me. I had a feeling if they were resonating with me, they're resonating with other people, which is how they got published in the first place. Um, and thought it would be nice to collect all that somewhere. Um, I've always kind of taken to writing, like diarying, journaling as a way, as an outlet for me and as a way to emotionally process. Um, And I actually went on a retreat at Kripalu up in the Berkshires um, that was led by Rebecca Soffer, um, who started Modern Moss. And the whole kind of aim of the weekend was focused on writing through grief and figuring different people that some people were there because they wanted to write a book. Some people were there because they wanted to kind of just do their own journaling exercises. And so I was um, motivated by that, timed with having all these thoughts and quotes and, you know, not having a place to put them and then realizing that there was a lot I was carrying day to day that would be well served to be processed and um, landed on Instagram as a platform where I could do the short form sort of thing and daily uh, posting and engage with people. And, you know, as as a millennial, uh, (laughs) we turn to social media and times like that. Uh, to find those outlets and just to see what was out there. I wonder, I love this notion of you can't escape grief because <laughs> it appears mm-hmm. in fiction and appears in nonfiction. It appears everywhere. And I don't think people really fully acknowledge it or recognize it until they've lost somebody too. And then they're like, oh, there's another death. Oh, there's another death. Oh, there's another death. Because for oh, other people, it's like lowercase a- death. And then for people who have lost, it's like, wow, that's okay. uppercase death. I mean, the number of times that someone's told me like, oh, you should really see this movie. And I'll be like, okay, can you just think through and make sure that it's like, is there anything like this, this or this in it? That Because I, you know, then it becomes not fun for me to watch. And this is supposed to be an enjoyable thing. Oh, no, no, it's totally fine. And then you like get halfway through the movie and they're like, oh, I forgot. Right. The like mom dies. I'm like, that's something that I would not forget happens in a movie. <laughs> Let me tell you. Um, so there's a lot of that. in life. Yeah. There's like a record keeping that happens in our brains when we're like, Oh, that's got a death in it. That's got death of a child. That's got death of a spouse. That's got death of a 
parent that's got death of a grandparent. Like I have a running log in my head of like, which type of sad do I want to feel if I'm going to sign up to watch this movie Um, or consume this book or, or read this article or, or what have you. Um, Do you ever feel a need to escape from grief, death altogether? Oh yeah. I woke up two days ago and I was like, can I stop feeling this way? That would be great. Um, Turns out, that's not how that works. Um, but I think part of what where that typically stems from is from a place of not wanting to deal with something that feels like it'll be too painful to deal with. Um, and the relief only comes from actually dealing with it and not trying to escape it. I think one, one of the harder things um, that I experienced, not, I think just the realization of it was that I had planned a, a trip to Hawaii with a couple girlfriends. Um, was super excited about it. It was the first vacation that I was kind of taking since both my parents died. You know, every other trip up until that point had been either back to Chicago to see um, my family, had been dealing with my brother, getting him where he needed to be, um, you know, maybe traveled a little bit for like friends' weddings and things like that, but nothing that felt like truly a vacation. And I was on the vacation and I realized, oh, I also have to bring my grief with me. It's not like I could get to just kind of leave that behind you think of vacation as you know I can unplug from work I can unplug from this I can unplug from that it turns out you can't unplug from grief and that just travels with you to whatever exotic and beautiful location you may be in um and so that was tough to have that of like oh I can't escape it even if I wanted to it doesn't matter kind of where I travel to um but for me it honestly typically comes down to like if I I actually deal with this head-on will I find some of that um relief afterward I love that that realization happened for you on vacation of all places or right before <laughs> vacation of like, yeah. Oh God, this goes in the suitcase too. Doesn't it? I know. I didn't have any room in my suitcase for stuff and it still found its way in. I don't know how. There's a funny <laughs> song that I love that I often have some of my one-on-one clients listen to called hello, Mr. Heartache by the Dixie chicks. I don't know mm-hmm. if you've ever heard this song, but, um, the lyrics essentially go, hello, Mr. Heartache. I've been expecting you come in where you're welcome out the way you always do. You never say if you're here to stay or only passing through. Hello, Mr. Heartache. I've been expecting you. And essentially it's about like this, you know, energy just comes and beats the door down and takes up room on the sofa and drinks are out of booze and all this other stuff. She's like, are you going to go away? Yeah. <laughs> um, and and the answer is nope. no. It's, it's this thing that you have to towed around with you for the rest of your life. And when you get to these spaces of, I'm probably avoiding something I really don't want to deal with, what comes next? Like what comes after that realization? What does dealing with it actually look like to you? So typically for me, um, it usually takes me going into therapy um, to actually face the vulnerability. But other than that, when when I know I don't have kind of an upcoming therapy session, Um, it may be taking a look at my calendar and saying, okay, you know, do I really need to do this dinner tomorrow night? Would I be better served? Maybe sitting at home, reading a book, looking at pictures, watching one of their favorite movies or something like that to give myself the ability to uh, feel into what I'm actually going through. Mm, I love that you mentioned that because every now and then I'll watch one of my mom's favorite movies to feel closer to her. And hers was The Sound of Music. (laughs) Um, as I'm sure uh, was the favorite movie of so many yeah. women in her generation. But yeah. um, do you want to share 
their favorite movies with us here today on Coming Back? <laughs> I would love to. Um, so my dad's favorite movie was Blazing Saddle. <laughs> That's such um, a dad movie. <laughs> such a dad movie. And I just like all he ever wanted in life is for me and my brother to love it as much as he did. And I'm just like, <laughs> this is not, you know, it's also like, it's like very long. Um, but it's funny. I mean, I get it's very his humor. So like that is nice for him. Um, my mom, I don't know that she had a favorite movie but I have like a favorite memory of things we watched together um unfortunately that was a lot of real housewives and so um I watch a lot of housewives and I think I get like an extra kick out of every episode because it feels like a connection point oh gosh of course because you're gonna hear her voice in your head judging everyone who's coming on the screen can you believe (laughs) yeah so I love I think you know, it's gotten a little out of hand given the number of franchises that there are in seasons. But, <laughs> um, you know, I, I enjoy listening to that and just thinking about like, oh, man, if she could see this, she would, you know, really get a kick out of it. I have that with HGTV or mostly trading spaces mm-hmm. where every time they traded spaces, mm-hmm. it was terrible. And my mom said, I oh would just gosh. never let someone come into my house and do all this. <laughs> and she would say it repeatedly. I'm like, Mom, we get it. <laughs> no one's yeah, coming here. No one's coming here. <laughs> all of the time and I'm like this is not we're not dealing with practical matters here no like, we're not well this, this is la la land sometimes we yeah. don't have to you know, that's the that's the blessing yeah. of reality television <laughs> we don't have to deal with reality exactly. right now. <laughs> no I love it so much well Rachel let us know where people can find you and your work where all the places you'd like to be found and where they can see more stories about you and your parents and your grief and your brother and your practicality, but also just like the relatableness that is grief in your twenties. Of course. Yes. So Instagram is the best place to find me. Uh, my handle is at that good grief. So thank Charlie Brown, but with that in front of it, I'm still better that good grief was taken. So, but we can <laughs> save that for another time. Um, and I have on there, I have my email address linked there because I, I'm, I have a list of resources that I retain. Um, and, lists of books that I've read, um, Facebook groups that I'm a part of, podcasts that I listen to, all that sort of good stuff um, that I'm always happy to share with people as a set of resources for them, for anyone who's going through different grief experiences. So um, certainly shoot me an email or DM and I'm happy to send that over to you. That's awesome because I think so many grievers are just looking for a place to start. They're like, just give me a thread to pull. Yep. There's no no welcome packet for joining the grief club. I think that's something that that is on the back of my mind. I think I would like to do that at some point, some sort of like book as like an en- intro to grief 101, um, as we've unfortunately all become experts. But um, until then, <laughs> you can email or DM me and I'll, I'll email you my list. Rachel, thank you so much for joining us here on Coming Back Today. I'm so grateful to personally follow your Instagram. And I, I repost your stuff all the time in my stories and people send me like the little hearts or yes, this or other messages of affirmation, which is wonderful. So I love having you out there as a resource and a fellow griever and just another voice that's willing to have these conversations. So I'm so glad you joined us today. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat. I I really appreciate it. And I know we're all in this together, unfortunately. So that's all for this episode of Coming Back. Thank you so much to Rachel Richbloom for coming on Coming Back to talk about the loss of her parents, what grief is like as a 20-something, and why it still really sucks that cancer is an astrological sign that exists. 
Rachel came back by going to therapy, watching her parents' favorite movies, and starting her Instagram account, at That Good Grief. You can follow Rachel's Instagram, at That Good Grief, and be sure to email her to receive her list of grief resource recommendations for you or for somebody you love. If you're looking for more grace, space, and room to breathe in the aftermath of loss, purchase a copy of my new book, Permission to Grieve Now, on Amazon. And remember, if you'd like to listen to the book, you can get it for free when you sign up as a new customer at audible.com. You can find a link to Permission to Grieve in the show notes. To keep this little grief podcast going and to receive inside bonuses like weekly grief journaling prompts, podcast swag, and live grief support with me, pledge to support the show at patreon.com slash Shelby If you liked what you heard today, subscribe to Coming Back on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and tell a friend about Coming Back, because you never know what someone you love is going through. Thank you to Addie Goldstein, who composed our theme music. You can find me on Facebook at Shelby Forsythia Intuitive Grief Guide, Instagram at Shelby Forsythia, or simply shelbyforsythia.com. If you'd like to leave a question or comment for a future show, email me at shelby at shelbyforsythia.com. As always, my dear grief growers, it was beautiful sharing this space and time with you today. I see you. I'm proud of you and the work that you're doing in the world. And I love you. Because even through grief, we are growing. Thank you.